All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Inflation, predictions for the new year and election cycles, as well as giving you some much needed help with your last minute Christmas shopping. That is all coming up next on Making the Argument with Nick Freitas, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. All right, so I want to go over a few things today. First things first, I want to make some predictions. And I don't typically do this, but I, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a little confident. I'm feeling in a bit of a gambling mood. And so I, I want to make some predictions about what I think is going to happen with respect to inflation, how I think the Federal Reserve is going to respond to this, and what it's going to mean for the next election cycle. So let's, let's start. First things first, what is inflation? Because a lot of people, to include a lot of elected officials, screw this up royally. Inflation is not simply prices going up. Prices can go up for a number of reasons. If you have increased demand and less supply, the prices for the remaining supply is going to go up. That's not inflation, all right? At least not in the way that we, we think about it. Inflation, as Milton Friedman used to like to say, is a monetary phenomenon, which means it has to do with the currency or whatever is being used as currency. And in the case of the United States, that is Federal Reserve notes. What that means is, is the Federal Reserve, which is a separate entity from the government, right? The government has you know, some say with respect to, you know, picking chairman and things like that. But ultimately, the Federal Reserve was established in order to prevent inflation, uh, in order to work with the government uh, to prevent things like run on banks and whatnot. But the primary function was to prevent inflation, was to provide for a more stable currency. Now, as we've already discussed in previous episodes, you go back 100 years, because the, the, that's, you know, right around what the Federal Reserve is. It's over 100 years old. And what you're going to find is, is that the overall value of your dollar has decreased significantly within that time frame. Significantly. And so some people might look at that and be like, well, that's an indication the Federal Reserve has not done a good job. People would argue different things on that. That's not the point. Here's the point I want to get to. Is that the Federal Reserve has been inextricably tied to political leadership. So even though it was supposed to be a, a separate entity that was supposed to make, you know, cool, calculated decisions with respect to the strength of the currency to prevent things like inflation, what has actually happened is it's been used as kind of like this magical bailout button to where when the economy is going bad, when we have a downturn in the economy, the Fed rushes in to save the day by doing what? Printing more money, lowering interest rates, right? That's what it effectively ends up doing. And this has happened across both parties. So I don't, I don't want to hear one party just pointing the finger exclusively to the other one saying this is all your fault. No, both parties have actually encouraged the Federal Reserve to engage in inflationary monetary policy. 
And again, the reason for that is because, and one of the most recent large examples that has kind of gotten us on this kick that we're still on, actually started in 1987 when Alan Greenspan, who was considered to be a champion of capitalism and free markets, when we had an economic downturn, when the stock market crashed in 87, right, the plan was, is well, the Federal Reserve is going to rush in with temporary measures in order to secure the markets by providing a lot of, uh, of additional loans, low interest rates, things of that nature. And what ended up happening is what they referred to as the Greenspan put, right? It was this idea that the Greenspan kicked the can down the road just far enough to where markets could stabilize, the economy could recover, and then we could go back to you know, less inflationary spending. And that's where sometimes you get this term that well, inflationary is transitory. Well, here's the problem. When you have an economic downturn, if your solution is just to infuse a bunch of cash and low interest loans to the very people that helped cause the crash, that's a pretty dangerous proposition. I don't think most of us would look at that as a, as a wise financial solution to a potential problem. But it's kicked off this idea that this is the way that we solve issues. And, and, the, and the primary problem with this is that every time we have a economic downturn, or when you start seeing politicians talking about a bubble, and when's the bubble gonna burst? And what they blame it on is they say, oh, well, this is just a, this is part of the business cycle. The business cycle creates this sort of boom and bust cycle. And when we're busting, that's when the Federal Reserve has to come in and, and prop up the business sector, prop up the economy a little bit more in order to get us through that negative portion to stabilize the markets and everything will be fine. That is one way to look at it. But there's another theory on this, and this is the theory that you need to know because quite frankly, it's not gonna be talked about by Paul Krugman or, or the talking heads on MSNBC or CNN, but I think it makes a lot of sense. So again, the traditional theory of this business cycle, all right, is, is fueled by this kind of Keynesian notion that the that markets are unstable because of like the animal spirit. That's where you see like the bull and bear markets, right? It's this idea that people engage in wild speculation, they engage in, in malinvestment, and at some point that reaches a tipping point where the economy suffers as a result. And so that's when the government swoops in to kind of save the day from this, you know, wild free market speculation. Right, so that, that's, that's what causes the bust. It's wild free market speculation, which then gets corrected by you know, proper you know, federal monetary policy and the Federal Reserve interjecting itself into the equation, and then things stabilize and get a little bit better, and then you know, lo and behold, later on, 10 years down the road, we have another you know, free market crash. That's one theory. Um, and again, for anybody that's looking at this saying, well, that's rudimentary. Look, we got 20 minutes on this podcast. I'm making it quick. Here's the Austrian theory of the business cycle. And again, this is what I think makes the most sense. The Austrian theory of the business cycle says that no, you should actually study what causes the boom. Because what you typically find out is that it's not just free-wielding market speculation, right, on the free market. That's not, that, that's not the sole cause, it's not even the primary cause. They actually point to examples where the Federal Reserve is coming in and they're setting interest rates artificially low. Right, so now it becomes easier to take out loans, to take out long-term capital loans. You'll see other policies where the, the government is pushing, the US Treasury is printing out more dollars to get into the economy to try to get things moving again. So here's what happens. There's two things that happens. One, when they set the interest rates artificially low, and it's not based off of increased savings, because usually the reason why your interest rates go up or down is dependent on how many people are saving their money as opposed to spending their money. So if more people are saving money in the bank, Right? Interest rates go down because the bank wants to get that money in the form of loans because that's how they make money. Right? So when you have high savings, you usually have lower interest rates. 
What happens when you have low interest rates but you don't have high savings? Well, that's the problem that we've been seeing for several decades now. And the, the issue with that is this. When you have high savings and you put out a bunch of loans, what that tells the business sector is people right now are saving more than they're spending. So this is a good time to take out loans for things like large capital projects. It might be a good time to engage in more building, right? Get that factory, build that capital equipment, um, you know, buy that new subdivision because all the savings at some point is going to mean people are going to want to spend that money, right? Because no one is just saving money to save it. They're, they're saving that money against future consumption. So again, the, the signal that's been sent to the business sector is this is a great time to invest in long-term projects that are going to allow us to be ready for that future consumption. But when that future consumption isn't coming, because this isn't built on savings, this is built on artificially low interest rates, it's built on inflation, what ends up happening is you have the same number of resources in the economy being used for a number of different purposes. But instead of letting prices work the way they naturally would, where the people that want the product the most are willing to pay the most for it, now you have everybody scrambling for resources for a number of projects, and that leads to malinvestment. So the important part to remember here is this is not just one day a bunch of business owners got up and decided to be idiots. They were responding to things in the marketplace like interest rates, which provide an indicator of what they should be doing. But when the government manipulates that process, you're sending bad signals. So essentially, you're sending bad information into the marketplace, and then people are responding based off of that bad information, and they make bad decisions with respect to how to invest. Now, what happens next? Well, at some point, the jig is up, right? At some point, people realize that, oh my gosh, this is, this is not working the way we thought it was going to work. So what do they do then? Well, they run back to the government and they say, we need help with this. We, we've got all these endangered assets. This is going to tank our economy. So what's the solution? Lower interest rates, print more money. So you see what's going on here is that far from this being a, a failure of the free market, these boom-bust cycles that we're experiencing are largely a result of the Federal Reserve and the government intervening into the marketplace, sending perverse signals, and then when people fail, propping up through bailouts and special monetary policies, the people that have the best connections to the government. So the reason why I lay that groundwork right there is because that's necessary to understand like why would anybody do this? Like why would we engage in inflationary monetary policy? So that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in this continual boom-bust cycle which both parties have been guilty of, which is in large part because of monetary policy. And now we find ourselves in a situation where we're looking at like 6.8% inflation. And what that means is that the treasury is pumping out so many dollars, so much, so much new currency is being created that the value of the dollar that you have is going down. Because what a lot of people don't realize when they think about money, they just think, well, money just has this inherent value. Money is a commodity. So the more dollar bills that you have in circulation, the less value each singular dollar bill has. Well, we're in a situation right now where 40%, right around 40% of the currency that we have in the United States was printed within the last two years. That is massive. And that is going to cause huge problems. And, and the reason why this keeps perpetuating itself, even though there's plenty of smart people that look at this and say, this is not sustainable, you can't do this. So this leads back to the question, right? If they know they can't do this, if they know there's a bad track record for this, 
if they know that inflationary monetary policy going all the way back to ancient China, ancient Rome, the Weimar Republic, Zimbabwe, if we all know that it can absolutely devastate an economy, why would anybody allow it to happen? And this is where perverse political incentives enter in. So there's two components here that we need to consider. One is politicians don't want the correction to come on their watch. Because does anybody here think that if a Democrat's in office, MSNBC or CNN, or if a Republican's in office, rather, anybody think MSNBC or CNN is going to come in and say, oh, no, no, it wasn't their fault. This was actually due to, you know, complex monetary policy that's taken place over several decades. So don't blame President DeSantis. No, they're not going to say that. The headlines are all going to read, DeSantis gets elected president, or whoever. Christy Nome gets elected president, if it's a Republican. And what you're going to see in six months, nine months, ten months, is that there's going to be some sort of key piece of legislation comes out that the left doesn't like. And then all of a sudden, the Federal Reserve is going to jack up interest rates because they should have been doing it a long time ago. The Treasury is going to have to shut down just printing more money at some point. And you're going to get a retraction from this because so much of our economy is built up into this inflationary bubble. So much of our economy right now is dependent upon this, this temporary fix, which is not a fix at all. It's just sowing the seeds for eventual destruction. But politically, there's a calculation involved here. And that calculation is very simple. It, you can pump it up as much as you want, as long as it doesn't burst during your administration. As long as you can pass off that hot potato to whoever's coming in next, and it bursts on their watch, then you can come back in and say, no, 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 it wasn't because of inflationary monetary policy. It wasn't because of stuff that we were doing last administration or the administration before that. No, no, no. This was because they passed tax cuts. This was because they reduced regulation. That's why the economy is tanking. See, we told you. That's the problem. Income inequality. That's what has led to this, this economic collapse. And that's my prediction. My prediction is, is that as much as the Federal Reserve, as much as a lot of other economists out there all understand that we are currently in an untenable position with respect to things like government spending, with respect to things like government debt, with respect to inflationary monetary policy, even though they know nothing what we are doing right here is sustainable. As much BS as they want to shift to us is like, well, no, 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 as long as we spend all this money, that's going to get the economy going and the economy will outgrow the inflation or outgrow the debt. Okay, we've been playing that game for a while now. It doesn't seem to be working. So they know that's not a tenable position. Anybody that's willing to take an honest look at this. But nobody wants to be responsible for when the collapse comes because the explanation is a little bit more complex than what you can fit on a bumper sticker. And so this becomes a political football. How do I pass it to the other team just in time for it to blow up in their face and then I run on what bad people they are and how their policies caused all this. And then we're going to come in and we're going to save the day. And how are we going to save the day? We're going to save the day with more government spending, more government control, more government regulations. We're going to find a bad guy and we're going to tell the public that's who the bad guy is. And the bad guy is going to be the rich or the bad guy is going to be the privileged or the bad guy is going to be industry or whatever it is. But the bad guy is never going to be the politicians or the people at the Fed that did the most to contribute to this problem. So, let me clear this up. Here's the prediction. If a Republican wins in two years, I don't think the Fed is going to do anything significant to try to lower interest rates. There's a lot of talk about it, 
And, and there's a big difference between doing what needs to be done and meddling a little bit, meddling just a little bit in order to try to show that you're, you're addressing the issue. But I think ultimately what's going to happen is the Federal Reserve is going to be under a lot of pressure to make sure that they keep doing what they're doing right now. Treasury is going to keep doing what they do right now. Because nobody wants the economy to get even worse before the midterms. Now, let's say we have the midterms and Republicans take the House and Republicans take the Senate. Now it's a question of, okay, who's really holding the ball, right? Who's really going to get in trouble if the economy starts to collapse now? Right now, you might be able to make an argument that you can say, oh, well, see, Republicans took over and then everything failed. It wasn't Biden's fault. Or you get to a situation where you have Republicans in charge of the House, Republicans in charge of the Senate, you have a Republican president, and now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden we start to get a conscience with respect to our fiscal responsibility. Now, keep something in mind. That's what I expect out of my party. That's what I expect a Republican chief executive to do. I expect them to look at the problem, be honest with the American people about what the problem is, be willing to stand up to everyone to include Wall Street and say we cannot continue to conduct economic and monetary policy in the way that we have, and the way out of it is to get back to sound money, is to get back to reducing government spending, it's about allowing people to keep more money in their pockets, it's about reducing the regulations and taxes which drive businesses and opportunities out of this country. There's gonna be some pain because this bubble's been growing for a while. So there is gonna be some pain and nothing can avoid that. All we can do right now is deal with it as fast as we can and do it in a way to where we let the world know and the American economy know that we're back in business, not because we're inflating the currency, not because the government is taking your money and then spending it on projects the government wants, but because we're entering into a new era of sound, responsible growth, which is built on producers and consumers working together within the marketplace as opposed to politicians and chairman of the Federal Reserve manipulating markets for political purposes and to the benefit of special interests at the expense of everybody else that just wants to do their job and work in the economy. So I expect Republicans to do that. I, I have no doubt that the media, I have no doubt that anybody within a position of power that can try to make it look like this is exclusively the Republicans' fault when we inevitably have an economic you know, reality check. But the bottom line is we've been here before. We've been in this situation a couple of times, both with Republicans and Democrats. And guess what? Both sides have screwed it up. But if you want to know, if you want to see an example of how you can address an economic downturn, a significant economic downturn, in a way that's actually responsible, not perfect, there were things that could have been done better, but not perfect, but, but responsible, go look to the early 1920s. And I know that's gonna blow your mind because if you've looked at any of the same high school textbooks I did or any of the, you know, the History Channel documentaries, you're all gonna hear about what a horrible human being Harding and Coolidge were. What horrible har human beings, um, you know, just set the stage for the Great Depression. I am telling you right now, it is absolute garbage. If you look what happens, what they inherited, they inherited an economy that was on a downturn. Woodrow Wilson had had a stroke, so basically he wasn't in a position to meddle in the economy to the degree that he wanted to after World War I and the economic downturn. Harding and Coolidge came in and were very honest about what they were going to do. They said, look, the bottom line is, is that we've inflated the currency too much. We have too much government spending, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut regulations, we're going to cut taxes, we're going to cut government spending, and we're going to return to sound, a more sound monetary position. 
And yet a lot of people saying that's absurd. That's going to, you know, the government's not going to be able to handle, or the economy's not going to be able to handle that. We're used to all these wartime regulations and spending and command and control. We can't just go back to a free market. That's what they did. And within a very short time period, you had a massive economic turnaround. Massive economic turnaround. Not because there was more government manipulation of the economy and the money supply, because there was less of it. Because what it told the private sector is, look, we've got to, you've got to make better decisions because you're not going to be able to come to the government and just have somebody bail you out by taxing somebody else or by punishing another business. And so what happened is, is that the millions of people within the economy were able to plan for their own life. Now, does this mean that there was no assistance? Does this mean that there was no help? No, absolutely not. That's not what happened. But it was the idea that the government had actually helped create this problem and the way they were going to solve it was not by further meddling or by arrogantly assuming that this time they'll get it right. It was about saying, no, we have created a condition where the government is so busy planning for everybody else that nobody can plan for themselves. And the government can't possibly effectively plan for millions of people engaging in thousands of economic transactions. Millions of economic transactions. So they put the power back in the hands of the private sector to be able to deal with it. And guess what? The private sector responded. Now, what some people will try to tell you is that that led to the crash of 1929. No, it didn't. There was actually a lot of things that led to that crash. But the other important thing to remember about that is even when you had the economic crash in 1929, within seven months, seven months of that crash taking place, maybe eight, unemployment was back down below 7%. It wasn't until the government started interfering in the economy, massively interfering into the economy under Herbert Hoover and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that all of a sudden unemployment shot up again and didn't drop, was still at like 17% in 1938. So don't let anybody tell you that what, what saved us from the economic collapse in the late 20s was more government intervention. That made it worse. No, what saved us from economic collapse that was taking place in 1919, was a pair of people, especially Calvin Coolidge, who understood that the role here of the government was not to tax more, not to regulate more, not to plan more for everybody else, but to create an environment where everyone could plan for themselves. So going forward, I expect that to be the example we use. Not the Alan Grain span of just pumping in more money and lower interest rates. Not the FDR and Herbert Hoover of let's do a massive amounts of government spending and government takeovers of industry. We're going to have to be honest and open with the American people about what this economic correction is going to look like. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, unless we have somebody that's willing to stand up and tell it like it is, when that correction takes place, everybody in the media, everyone on the left is going to blame everything except themselves. They're going to blame capitalism. They're going to blame wealth and income inequality. They're going to blame racism. They'll blame sexism, transphobia. They'll blame everything except for the actual things that are creating this economic crisis. Government spending, government regulation, higher taxes, inflation, artificially low interest rates. All of these things are sending perverse signals to the economy and choking it out. So there's my prediction. And again, my hope is is that instead of Republicans just kicking the, kicking the can down the road like other Republican administrations have done, instead of saying, as long as it doesn't happen on my watch, I don't care, I am hoping we will have someone that gets up there and demands the sort of fiscal responsibility that is demanded of all of us when we manage our own households. All right. 
I owe you one other thing today. And um, look, the bottom line is this, this podcast is going to go out here shortly. You got about one more week of Christmas shopping. I get asked this question a lot. And this has to do with uh, the books I read, the movies I watch, things like that. What would be good presents? So I am here to help you out with all of your last minute shopping, to be able to provide that gift, the gift of understanding, the gift of a greater appreciation for liberty, the sort of gift that you desperately want to give to your child before they head off to college to major in sociology, right? Here it is. All right, so I'm going to give you a couple of different book recommendations, um, a, a couple of show recommendations. These are all things that, you know, again, I think you're going to enjoy. All right, first and foremost, and you guys probably have seen this one coming when it comes to books, Thomas Sowell. Now, I will tell you right now, you can literally line up every title Thomas Sowell has ever written, throw a dart, and whatever you hit is excellent. You're, you can't go wrong. But I like to recommend this book, The Thomas Sowell Reader, because what this is is a compilation of, like, I think hundreds of articles, at least dozens of articles that he has written over time on a variety of subjects. So if this is, if like you're being introduced to Thomas Sowell, you don't know much about him, maybe you've seen a couple of his articles, maybe you've heard me mention him, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast or on TikTok where we do Thomas Sowell Tuesdays, you know, this is a good book to start off with because you're going to get kind of the full depth and breadth of the things that Thomas Sowell writes about. And again, he, he's a trained economist. Um, he, he's brilliant, but his ability to speak and reason and research and provide information in a way that's easily digestible, concise, easy to understand is just incredible. Like I don't know anybody else. I don't know any other contemporary that does as good a job as Thomas Sowell. This is why when, when I do my Thomas Sowell Tuesday, I end every single one with, and this is why Thomas Sowell is a national treasure and not allowed to die because the man truly is brilliant. But the Thomas Sowell reader, all right? So if you've never, never read anything by Thomas Sowell before and you want kind of a good introduction to Thomas Sowell, Thomas Sowell reader, great book. You can get it on an Amazon, get it for a friend. You, uh, you, won't, you won't be disappointed. All right, one other book by Thomas Sowell and then I promise I'll move on to some other ones. There are other good authors out there, I promise you. But um, another one that I think is especially relevant for the conversations that are going on right now in our country. Um, discriminations, or excuse me, Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell. You cannot turn around right now without somebody claiming that any sort of disparity in society is automatically a result of racism. Ibram X. Kendi actually came out, big CRT advocate, actually came right out and said that essentially capitalism was racist and that when he saw a racial disparity, he saw racism. And the biggest question that we all have with that is we, we want to be able to answer this and we want to be able to answer it effectively, both with empirical data, but we also want to be able to answer it from a logically consistent, you know, common sense approach. And you cannot find a better resource for that than Thomas Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities. Because he doesn't just look at the United States. You, you see this in another book he did as well. He goes all over the world and, he, and he, he gets this data together and he says, okay, we're gonna take a hardcore look at the claim with respect to discriminations and disparities, but then we're also gonna take a look at what are the proposed solutions? What has the left offered as a solution? Where has it been implemented? Has it worked? And if you are looking for somebody that is an absolute outstanding job of compiling that data and presenting you with an argument that is easy to share and just impossible to refute, Thomas Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities, right? That's the second book I am putting on your list. All right, now third book. We're gonna go with the classic here. Again, one you've heard me talk about before. It's called The Law by Frederick Bastiat. This book is like 70 pages. 
You, you can even, like, there's some places you can go, you can order it for free, you can get it online for free, you can get the audiobook for free. Um, but Frederick Bastiat uh, wrote in the 1800s in, in France. He was, there, he was there during the French Revolution, um, and just an incredible observer, of uh, a credible commentator on, on political philosophy, on economic philosophy. But if you were looking for a primer, like if, if you're looking for one book that says, okay, how do we describe, and I've had people ask me this before, like, Nick, how do you describe your political, what's your underlying political philosophy? Frederick Bastiat's The Law does a, a phenomenal job on this because what he talks about is the perversion of the law. He talks about how the law is used not to provide justice, but to provide people with connections access to things at the expense of other people. He talks about the perversion of the law. And he does a great job in the examples he uses, even though he's writing in the 1800s, the examples that he uses are easy to understand. They're outstanding. And if you're looking for kind of making that deeper philosophical argument, because we can argue all day long, should the marginal tax rate be this percentage or that percentage? You know, how much money should we spend on transportation? Before we answer any of those questions, we have to answer the question of why are we doing this in the first place? Why do we have a government? What is the purpose of the law? And as, as obvious as some of these things may seem to you, I'm willing to bet you have found yourself in more situations than one in recent history where somebody has challenged something that you just took for granted, that you didn't even consider having to defend because you've never had to. Well, Frederick Bastiat breaks this down at a foundational level probably, I mean, as good as anyone I've ever seen in, in a very short book, right? So like I said, about 70 pages, The Law by Frederick Bastiat. You don't even got to buy this. You should, but you don't even got to buy it. You can go on and you can find uh, free versions of it online, audiobooks, etc. But Frederick Bastiat, The Law, that one's critical. All right, fourth book. This is for anybody that wants to dig in a little bit more into economics. Now, I know what you think I'm going to say. You think I'm going to say Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, and that would, in fact, be a great book, right? But I'm actually going to recommend a different one. I'm going to recommend one that, again, is, is a little bit shorter, a little bit easier to tackle if, it, if it's your first foray into like truly understanding economics, because economics does influence so much of what we do with the, throughout our lives. And, and if you're tired of someone saying, well, this isn't about economics, this isn't about money, this is about people. Ladies and gentlemen, economics is about people. The whole point of understanding economics is so that we can better take care of ourselves, our families, and the people around us. And if you don't have a good understanding of economics and you're out there pushing for policies, don't tell me you care about people because you don't. You care about feeling good about talking about caring about people. But Economics in One Lesson does an outstanding job of breaking down the most, once you hear it, it's the most obvious economic principle and it's perhaps the most ignored by those in political power. All right, the, 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 one of the lessons that he really focuses on, or I should say the lesson that really focuses on the idea of the seen versus the unseen. Nothing is easier for a politician to take your money, spend it on something, then walk you over to it, point at it, and see, without me, this wouldn't have happened. What Hazlitt encourages all of us to consider is, what would have happened with that money had we not taken it from the people who earned it in the first place? And he does a great job explaining this across a number of examples. And the reason why I'm encouraging this book is, is one of your four reasons to economics is because it really will help you see this issue in a way that simply is not taught, certainly not taught in our high schools, and I, and I would argue more and more is not even taught in, in higher level economics classes. So Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, absolutely you know, great book. All right, I'm going to do one more book. There, there's a lot more, but I'm going to do one more book, and, and I'm going to recommend one show. Um, the other book that um, I wanted to recommend 
uh, was called Life at the Bottom, and it's by Theodore Dalrymple. And what I find so powerful about this book, and the reason why I think this book is going to be so important going forward, the reason why I'm recommending this book now, like if this was 10 years ago, this probably would not be on the, the top five books that I would recommend for you uh, to read and, and really get this sort of information and this perspective. But for what, where we are currently at and where we are going as a country, this book is going to be critical. So Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple. And what it is, is he talks about the what he calls the mindset that creates the underclass or the lower class. And he doesn't mean that as a, as a pejorative sense. He doesn't mean like someone is a lower class person. What he means is that after working for years as a doctor, as a psychologist within the prison system, within the hospital, within the National Health Service in England, in Sub-Saharan Africa, what he talks about is his experiences in this book talking with, with flesh and blood people that we all care about, that we all want the best for, that have adopted this mindset that in his opinion is created by the modern government-directed welfare state. And the stories that he tells in there are heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, the, one of the things I love about this book is you don't walk away from it thinking, oh, well, you know, I can't believe that person did this. Like you genuinely feel for these people and, and, and you genuinely want to understand like why, why do these decisions keep getting made? And what Theodore Dalrymple, which is his pen name, what the doctor actually explains is, is why the decisions that they're making are in many cases very rational for the circumstances that they've been put in by the government that claims to try to help them, but is essentially perpetuating a kind of self-destructive dependency and, and a feeling of, of hopelessness combined with a sense of entitlement. And he talks about how this doesn't just hurt the material situation, it is actually corrosive to the soul. And so Theodore Dalrymple's Life at the Bottom, highly recommend it because the arguments that you're going to get into, if you're, if you're sitting there and you're reading all these other books and you're coming back with really good logical arguments on why economically that policy doesn't make sense, or if you're coming up with a really good logical argument for why, no, that's a violation of individual liberty and that's a bad thing because it produces poor social results, etc., but you're not able to tap in to what all of this is really about. Because I don't know about you, but for me, let me explain it. It's real simple. I believe every human being has inherent worth because they were made in the image of their creator. They have a right to be able to pursue happiness. My job in the legislature is to protect their right to be able to do that, provided they don't infringe on the rights of someone else to do it. So when I study economics, when I study psychology, when I study war, when I study transportation policy, all of it is rooted in this idea that what we are trying to do is create an environment where people are able to find their meaning and purpose in life and be able to pursue it with rigor and success. And I'm convinced from, from reading the books that I've just shared with you, I'm convinced that the best way to do that is never going to be through this sort of intensive government control and micromanagement of the economy, of our lives, of our businesses, of our schools. We have to assume the risk associated with freedom in order to get the sort of results we all dream of. So I highly recommend these books. Um, again, I'll, I'll do a once over. The books were The Thomas Sowell Reader, Discrimination and Disparities. Uh, those are both by Thomas Sowell. The Law by Frederick Bastiat. Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt. And then finally, Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple. Those five, I think, would be great choices. All right, I'm going to give you one, one total pop culture 
uh, show that you you have to watch. Like I've been, a, I accidentally stumbled across this show and almost instantly became addicted. And the next thing I know, I've watched eight seasons of one version and two seasons of another. And it's not like I've got a ton of time. So this ends up being like, all right, I'm going to watch one more episode. And I'm going to go to bed because it's one o'clock in the morning. Next thing I know, it's three o'clock in the morning. I've watched two more episodes and I'm like, oh, okay, I got to go to sleep now. All right, so here it is. Ready? Homestead Rescue. Now, for those of you who are like, Nick, I don't watch this type of show. This is not my thing. I, I get it. All I'm saying is give it a shot. Homestead Rescue on the Discovery Channel. Uh, there's a lot of things on the Discovery Channel that, you know, whatever, I can, I can take or leave. But this show, Homestead Rescue, what I love about it is, one, if you are the sort of person that, that's interested in, in you know, building things and certain, like, hacks to get things done when you don't have all the equipment you wish you had, or gardening, or, or building a greenhouse, or whatever it is, right? Um, it, it's, there's a lot of really cool information on this. But the other thing that's great is the family dynamic. You've got, you know, you know, Marty, Matt, Misty, you've, you've got just, you know, Molly, like they're all M names, right? But um, they go through and they, they help these people that are trying to homestead in states all over the country. And then there's also a, an, another spinoff of this where it's specifically their homestead up in Alaska. And the things that they're, they endure and the things that they're able to accomplish are just really cool. And there's a lot of stuff on there that even if you've never even dreamed of homesteading, but you like the idea of, of maybe, you know, building a greenhouse, um, or, or, or doing some woodworking. They just got some really cool hacks in there. Like I said, the family dynamic is just so nice to watch. There, there's so much garbage on TV right now where they are running down marriage or they're running down the family or, or they're making it seem like everything else in the world is more important um, than, than being together with the people that you love and accomplishing something. And this show is a departure from that. And I think it really celebrates not just you know, a greater idea of self-sufficiency. It's not just that. It's, it's, not, it's rugged independence within a community of family and friends and people that are working together to make it in some really difficult situations. So there's, a, there's, you know, there's humor, there's suspense, there's tragedy. Great show to watch. Again, if you're looking for something to throw on with, you know, you got a couple hours, you just want to relax, um, this is a great show. Homestead Rescue, highly recommend it. All right. We got a couple more podcasts. We're going to go out next week, and then we got Christmas coming up. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a, a break from some of our work, but we're still going to deliver these podcasts to you because that's the commitment that we make and because the arguments don't stop. In fact, a lot of times during the holiday season, the arguments sometimes intensify. And so what we're going to focus on, on some podcasts coming up before Christmas is how do we get in, you know, how do we prepare? How do we prepare for that one relative, that one person, or you know, our kid coming home from college, whatever it is, how do we prepare knowing that if we can't avoid the topic, because sometimes, look, sometimes it's just best to avoid the topic, enjoy Christmas together, enjoy that family time. You know, Not everything needs to be a political discussion. But when something comes up, how do we equip you to be in a position to be able to share what you believe in a meaningful way without destroying Christmas? Once again, thank you very much for joining us on Making the Argument, and we will see you next episode.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.